All right, folks, uh, we're back in the catechism, and what we're going to do today is continue question 26. I'm going to invite you to look that up in your pocket catechisms or in the back of the Trinity Hymnal. I know most of you have it memorized, but it does help for visitors if you open this. They don't feel like they're the only ones who have to look it up. So, um, no, I I heard laughter. I I don't understand that. Okay. And as you know, we continue to look at the catechism, even as you heard me saying in our prayer, because it's our teacher. It serves as instruction. We learn from the wisdom of the past. And the catechism unfolds for us what the scripture teaches. It is not the scripture. It is not on the same level as the scripture. Uh, it is not infallible. It's not inerrant and so on. But it summarizes what the scripture teaches. And it's that that we want to look at as we go through it. So we are in question 26. We did look at the first, or most of it last week, but we have one big topic yet to cover. So can I ask somebody to read the question and uh, the answer, please? And we'll get started. We saw last week that this is the third of the three offices that Jesus uh, executeth, (laughs) right, executes, uh, that of prophet, priest, and king. We've looked very carefully at how those three things actually is what defines us as human beings made in the image of God. So the fact that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king highlights the fact that he is the human being, the one perfect one who fulfills the covenant of works. Now, we all think of him as fulfilling the covenant of grace. Yes, the covenant of grace is God sending one person to fulfill the covenant of works that we were not able to do. Jesus is that perfect human being that perfect prophet, priest, and king in his uh, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So with that said, we've been unpacking those, and we got to the fact that he is the king. We looked at this answer last week. He subdues us to himself. His first conquest for the kingdom is our very souls. He makes us his. He rules us as king. We're part of his kingdom. He defends us. And he is in the process of restraining and conquering, as it says, all his and our enemies. Uh, By the way, if we had some more time, some other time, we would unpack what his and our enemies means. Does it mean that when somebody cuts you off, you can sit there and say, Lord, strike them down? You know, is that what it means? Or somebody at work is nasty uh, to you, or they take your promotion that you worked for, and, you know, they take credit for your work, and they're the ones who get promoted. Can you pray the imprecatory psalms? And uh, perhaps some other time we'll have an opportunity to look at the imprecatory psalms. If you're not familiar with that term, uh, imprecation means to call down curses on someone. So the imprecatory psalms are the ones that say, dash their children on the rocks uh, and so on, uh, or may this happen to them, blah, 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 and so you know. And um, you might sit there and say, okay, what does that mean as Christians? Do we strike those? Are those uh, non-Christian as our liberal uh, uh, friends say that those are um, should just be you know ignored or they they're of course they don't believe in inerrancy and infallibility so they just believe that that's just something that we can that, that was part of their the, the barbaric aspects of primitive man because uh, obviously they haven't looked at, a, at abortion the very things that they support nowadays but that's a separate discussion um, so the imprecatory psalms uh, do have a role to play for us and it actually is summed up in this all his and our enemies. But it actually has to do also with subduing ourselves. I'll simply saying this, the key enemy that we have today is not the guy who cut you off or the person at work. What's our key enemy today? Ourselves, that's actually a good part of it. Uh, it It was the key enemy back then. But our key enemy, the one thing that keeps us from having a right relationship with God and the reason why there is death in the world is because of sin. Everything in the Old Testament are shadows that point to things. So you had an earthly king, and so the idea of killing off an earthly enemy was a picture of something deeper and broader. When David fought the Philistines, right, we don't sit there and say, who are our Philistines? Oh, it's the mosque next door. Let's go get them. You know, that kind of thing. That's not how we think. That was to point to the fact that God's kingdom was going to conquer our enemies, and our enemies are first and foremost sin, first in our own hearts, and yes, in the culture around us. And the weapons that we use, Paul tells us, are the weapons not of physical warfare, 
but those of the word and prayer. And of course, you can read all about it in Ephesians chapter 6. So I'll simply say that and we won't unpack any more of that. But going back to Christ is our king, there were three things that we saw last week. First of all, actually two things. And the third is what we're going to cover today. So the first thing that we saw is that if he's a king, that means he has a kingdom. So there is a kingdom. And we pointed out that our evangelical brothers and sisters who are dispensational believe that that kingdom is yet future. That the kingdom has come in, or rather that Jesus arrived, offered the kingdom to his people, the Jews, They rejected him, therefore he put that program on hold, dispensationalism teaches, and that the church, the turning to the Gentiles, was plan B. Actually, if you're a Schofield Bible, it's plan G or something, but that's besides the point. It's it's another plan, and the church is then a parenthesis in the history of redemption, and that when Jesus returns, which is what we want to look at today, then the kingdom will come. But what we saw last week is that the kingdom and Christ, Christ is king now. Right, so that was one of the key things that we saw last week, that he is king now. And we talked a little bit about what his kingdom is like. It's already in existence. We said that it is spiritual, not a physical kingdom. That's why it can be now that it is uh, invisible, and last thing we said is it's forever. So those are the things that we said regarding the nature of Christ and his uh, kingship and the kingdom. We then looked briefly at the church and the kingdom, and we asked the question, is the church the kingdom? And the answer is no. Think about it, what is the church? Not a trick question. What's the church? Us, believers. We, you know, talk about the body of Christ, but it's people. It's people. A kingdom is not people. A kingdom has people in it. A kingdom is a reign, right? Reign as in the reign of God. It's the extent of God's rule. And so the extent of Jesus' reign, his rule, his kingdom, works through the church as the church goes out and gathers people through the preaching and teaching of God's word through the gospel, it wins people who enter into the kingdom. They enter into the church too, mind you. But the church and the kingdom, as we saw last week, are not the same things. We saw how that can be mistaken by believers in different places. We saw how, for example, the Roman Catholic Church, the church is the kingdom, and that's since everything is to be brought under the reign of Christ... That is why they believe that everything must be brought under the reign of the church. And there's no distinction in Roman Catholicism as there is elsewhere in the idea that there are three, shall we call them, um, spheres of sovereignty. Yes, let's do that because that's after all what they are called in in, uh, in theology. Right, when we talked about, there's the family. Guys remember these? What's the next one? Yeah, the civil government. Maybe I should have done that. Okay. And last one. Yep. I should have done these. Boom, boom, boom. And they're all under the lordship of Jesus. That's Christ. Um, So it's not just that the church is ordained and ruled by Christ. But Romans 13 tells us that every government that exists, every authority that exists has been instituted by God and that there is no authority outside of God's giving it and that the civil magistrate uh, gets his authority and he's to obey. Now you might say, well, we've got a civil magistrate uh, today in the, in the White House who doesn't recognize that. Well, neither did Caesar and yet Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, Paul still said those things. Uh, just like you have church leaders who sometimes don't, obey and rebel against the, the headship of, and the leadership, the kingship of Christ, so do civil leaders. And in the family, uh, the headship of the husband as head of his home, same thing. But it means that Jesus' reign is over all of these. So I'll leave it there. That's just by way of review of what we did last week. 
as we move into what I want to talk about today, any questions about any of this stuff before we move on? Questions from last week or if, if it prompted something new this week? No? All good? All right, so that means I'm either absolutely crystal clear or I have so muddled it you have no idea what we're talking about. Okay, we'll take bets on which one it is later, but um, today we're going to have fun and we're going to talk about millennial views because if, in fact, his kingdom has always, not has always, but has come with his, his first coming, then what does that mean for his second coming and so on and so on? And there are various millennial views uh, especially when we talk about his restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. When will that be finalized? What does that look like? So let's talk a little bit about that. So uh, break open your Bibles and take a look at Revelation chapter 20. All right, thank you, Connor. Okay, so here twice there is mention made of a thousand years. That is the term millennium. So when we talk about millennial views, the view of the thousand years. And whole theologies have been built on these two uses. And uh, let me just say that the vast majority of them are wrong. <laughs> I was looking to Matt. <laughs> Why do I look at you, Matt, when I think of wrong views? It popped into my head. That's, so. I, I, I love Matt because he just gives me a foil all the time to use. But... Um, we need to be able to understand the millennium in context. Now, the thing about the whole book of Revelation is if you're looking at it and you're seeing helicopters and, you know, okay, it talks about, we got these, they have the tails of a scorpion, but the head of a, oh, that's an AH-64 Apache helicopter, right? An officer training uh, this past Friday, some of the guys were noting how at different times and different ages, there have been all sorts of things that have been confused, uh, like in the 1800s were the pounding, you know, the cavalry, the U.S. cavalry. I mean, that was a pretty impressive force when uh, you would hear them coming on the plains right here on North Texas. And all those hooves, and I mean, the thundering of the hooves as they all went out. You know, it's impressive. And somebody said, that's it. That's what it's all about. So there's a whole cottage industry of writing books. You know, Hal Lindsey and all these other guys who've been doing that for a long time. And they'll continue for a long time of people doing that kind of thing until they understand that the whole book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature, is absolutely true, but it uses spiritual metaphors to communicate truth. It uses images, and virtually every one of those images is drawn from where? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. So if you understand the Old Testament, then you're good. The problem is that our dispensational brothers and sisters, because of the whole parenthesis thing, which is wrong-headed, have said the Old Testament is not for us. That's when you hear silly things like, we're New Testament Christians. And so when they don't read the Old Testament and don't master the Old Testament, they don't learn the interpretive key. Right? There's a few. There's a few. So for example, in Revelation chapter 4, we see the throne, throne room in heaven. And we see the elders gathered around. How many elders are there in Revelation 4? 24. Why 24? It's not 25. 25 would have been the right number. Why 24? Patriarchs. Yes. See, because Phil grew up in the Reformed Church, so yes. Yes, for the catechisms and for all this kind of stuff. That's right. It represents the whole church. Old Testament and New Testament all represented worshiping God. And then there's this crisis. God has this book that's, that's sealed with seals. What's that book? Anybody know what's in that book? Who's speaking? I can't. Uh, is that, was that you, Connor? You're getting a lot of gold stars today because you graduated on Friday. So everybody, Connor graduated. Yeah, yeah. And um, yes, it is the book of God's eternal decree. The whole book of Revelation is a book of comfort for God's people. How do we know we're being persecuted, we're being smashed, Domitian is on the throne and he's uh, Caesar's throne, not, you know, the heavenly throne. And he's absolutely crushing uh, Christians all throughout the empire. Okay, worse than Nero, worse than Nero. Nero was a short little burst because it was something that amused him for that weekend or however long. But Domitian has a program and he's going to wipe out Christians. And the whole book of Revelation is sit there and say, he's on that throne, but... Somebody else is on the heavenly throne. 
So here's this book that says, don't worry, all of history has been recorded, but how do we know it's going to happen? And so John turns around and he sees, what? A lamb as one who has been slain. Seven eyes and seven horns and so on. Now, who is that lamb? The Sunday school answer? Jesus, right? Nobody really thinks that Jesus transmogrified into a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. Nobody believes that. We get that it's symbolic language, right? When the woman gives birth in chapter 12 and the dragon comes and tries to swallow her up, but she escapes into the desert and so on, do we see that as Mary? No, it's the church in the Old Testament. Israel was the church. Nation, church, same thing, no longer the new, as we read very clearly in the book of Acts and elsewhere. But there is the serpent who is Satan. Okay, so you can make all those connections. So when we come to all the other imagery, they all can be found in the Old Testament in exactly in the same way. All right. So once we've established that, now we can begin to think logically about the millennium. We can begin to sit there and say, what kind of use is there? Let's take a look at Daniel chapter, uh, let's pick a chapter, 7. And hold on to that because we're going to look at the three views as to how the millennium works. Let's see. So we're going to come up with, uh, let's call this one premillennial. So pre, of course, means before. So here's how they see it. Here's the cross. The cross is Jesus' first coming, okay? And here's Jesus. What do we want to say? Just to say Jesus returns. So here's Jesus returning, a little down arrow. Put a little Cairo, Jesus. So this is Jesus returning. So this, we're somewhere in this timeline, according to the premillennial, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And in premillennialism, when Jesus returns, believers are resurrected. Believers are resurrected. And then Jesus sets up shop in Jerusalem, and he reigns for a literal thousand years. Literal thousand years. And then, at the very end of that, unbelievers are resurrected, and new heavens and a new earth and all this other stuff. Okay, so that's one view. It's, um, it has two flavors. Uh, one is uh, the one that if you come from a Baptistic background, the dispensational view is what you're familiar with, is the one that says that the kingdom was offered here, didn't take, we're in the church age now, but when Jesus comes and he sets up uh, shop in Jerusalem, uh, the temple will be rebuilt, sacrifices will be reinstituted for those thousand years. And there's all questions of whether he comes in the middle, the before or after a seven-year tribulation. That's all a misunderstanding of Daniel 9. We don't have time to get into that today. But that's your dispensational premillennialism. That's the, the flavor of that. Um, there's all sorts of things that are kind of wacky with that. For a thousand years, you have people who are perfected walking around with people who are not. Perfected people living in a world of sin. Right, you got that. It's kind of a little weird. Some say, no, that's not what happens. They go to heaven and they're shuffled off. But if it's the general, if it's a resurrection and not just them being raptured, they get their new bodies, where are they? There's a lot of ah, stuff that doesn't make sense. But by far, the worst part of dispensational premillennialism, we'll still talk about the thousand years in a moment, um, is the fact that Jesus rebuilds the temple. What is the temple? Sacrifices, but in and of itself, what is a temple? Where God is manifest. God is everywhere, but there's, because we're the ones that are limited, he makes himself known in particular places. The temple was where you can go and you can have fruition of God, where he manifests himself in a particular way. What does Jesus say in John chapter two? We've just been looking at it with Imad. He is the final temple because his nickname what's his Jesus nickname 
angel gave it to him, Matthew one twenty one. Emmanuel, yes, did I hear that from Tanya? Yeah, hey. Emmanuel, God with us. You no longer need to go to the temple. We're told all throughout the New Testament you can go straight to Jesus and pray to him. The church now is the temple, we're told. It's an amazing thing because the Spirit indwells us. You no longer need a physical temple. It does violence to all of the redemption of Christ to rebuild the temple. It robs him of who he is. Jesus would never do that. Second, to reinstitute sacrificial system robs him of the efficacy of his once and for all, Hebrews words, not mine, a once and for all substitutionary death. That whole system robs the gospel of its strength and power. Okay? Now there is something known, did we just lose? No, there, there is something known as historic premillennialism, which does not bring in the temple, does not bring in sacrifices, believes that the kingdom did come in with Jesus, that we're still in this period now, and that when he returns, believers will be resurrected, unbelievers come later, a thousand years, but he's just going to reign himself. No temple, no sacrifices, he's the king, and so on. A literal 1,000 years. That view has been held by some uh, Reform folks, not by many, but that's the premillennial view. There's another view called, uh, starting to lose it with this marker, post-mill. Can you all see that there? Post-mill says Jesus came, brought in the kingdom, all that stuff. We're in some period now of, you know, uh, regular life, but at some point, the church is going to take off. I mean, it's going to like really just, there'll be peace and righteousness and everything will be just like, you know, people will be coming to Christ, the church will be dominant and so on. And that that thousand years is a literal thousand year reign is then when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, then instead of just believers, there'll be a general, everybody is resurrected. Okay, so there's this point of prosperity. Um, different reform folks have held to this at different times. Um, whenever you have had the church triumphant, like during, like right after the Reformation, right? Calvin wasn't two hundred percent sure where things were going, but a little bit after that, the time of the Puritans, we're winning, and so they all thought, oh, it's the Reformation, uh, rather the millennium, ah. and so they they held to the millennial view. And certain people have held to that at different times. Uh, there were some folks uh, coming up, uh, up through the 50s who were thinking, yay, we're winning, until the 60s came. Um, okay, and then the last view is called amillennial because it does not hold to a literal thousand years. And it's the simplest view of all. Jesus' first coming now, and then Jesus returns. Uh, and it's as simple as that. And there is no literal thousand years. All of this, thank you, is figuratively a thousand years. And this is the general, thank you so much for those. So this is the general resurrection of Christ, of, of, of uh, people, believers and unbelievers alike. So in one sense, it's kind of similar to this, but there's no thousand years. So the church can go up and down. and uh, you, know. you can have tribulation, you can have better moments, and so on and so on. So which one is true? Which one is right? Takers? Well, when you say the tribulation, which is an interesting uh, thing, um, we're again looking at Revelation, and when you say, how does it fit in on here? Do you mean on each model? Okay, so our premillennial brothers uh, believe that there's going to be a particular period and they don't know if it's going to be if Jesus comes before that tribulation, and in which case they're pre-trib Christians. At the end of that, post-trib. In the middle of that, mid-trib. You've heard all these? Yeah, if you were ever, uh, well, you didn't because you grew up in a PCA church. Bless you, my child. But if you grew up in any kind of church that, you know, had some dispensationalism thing, 
You spent years with charts all opened and you had to stand on your head and face towards Jerusalem and then you can figure it all out. But there was all these kinds of things that you had to work out. In post-millennialism, the tribulation is, according to some, going to happen right before, but for many, it's here. Are you post-mill, Scott? No, you're not. Okay, I figured you like the Puritans, you like Psalms, and so I thought maybe. No, I, I didn't mean that in a bad way. There's a lot of good guys who are post-mill. They're wrong. I mean, they're, um, they're good people. <laughs> And then Amil understands the tribulation to be the entire time. Uh, that the church is under, under the gun the entire time, uh, which has generally actually been our experience. There are some who, who I think have been affected so much. I mean, it's like, okay, I'll give you a completely different analogy. In our country, because Protestantism had been, had is the key word, so prevalent and it was an evangelical version of Protestantism with Bible reading and it didn't matter whether you were Lutheran or Anglican or the Episcopalians that used to be called, uh, you were Methodist, people read the Bible and that began to affect Roman Catholics in this nation. More so than, you know, like where Mary Jo grew up in Latin America where nobody, you know, knows what the Bible says. It's just complete, you know, unknown. Uh, here you can actually find Bible studies for Roman Catholics in churches. And it might not always say the same things that we agree with, but they're, they're doing that. They've been affected. So, yes, there has been in, in America, because, and dispensationalism is a uniquely American phenomenon. American phenomenon. I grew up, it started in England, didn't survive uh, the 1870s, 1880s. It jumped across the pond uh, with, uh, with Schofield and really took a hold uh, around the turn of the last century, 1900 and so on. Uh, where you find it overseas, it's because of Baptist missionaries that have gone, just so you know. But nobody else anywhere in the world holds a dispensationalism. But uh, the effect that it's had here is that, yeah, some have said, well, yeah, it's all tribulation, and there's this little period of tribulation at the end, a little heightened moment, that kind of thing. We're going to look at whether that's, a, that's um, worth saying, whether that really fits the data or whether we're trying to just kind of, uh, you know, put that in there or not. Um, so if we look at Daniel 7... And the, can I just have somebody read verses 9 through, um, let's just do 9 through 10. And this is apocalyptic literature, by the way, which is to say symbolic literature. Okay, so what's that depicting? What is that? That's Judgment Day. Okay, who's the Ancient of Days? Well, it's God, and this, you know, they haven't yet gotten to Christ, although that's one of the, the things that wakes you up when you get to a book of Revelation is that that same vision, when it's played out, it's now Jesus who sits on the throne. So it's very clear this is Jesus. He is the Ancient of Days, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, his clothing was white as snow. God doesn't have clothing. Uh, so again, this is a spiritual image, right? And then it says a thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000. So the second one, 10,000 10, times 10,000, I can literally do. I can take 10,000 and I can multiply it by 10,000. But what is a thousand thousands? Hmm? Well, if it would have been a thousand thousand, I can multiply that. But what's a thousand thousands? How many are the thousands that's being multiplied by a thousand? So, so what is this trying to say? Say again? Or in this case, a lot of people. Right? It's just saying a multitude you can't count, right? Just a, a huge number. That's what it's just trying to communicate. Do we use that word that way nowadays? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. All, exactly, all the time. Yeah. So we use the word thousand exactly in the same way. You know, a thousand people showed up, you know, that kind of thing. All the time. So one of the interesting things that we discover if we look at the Old Testament is that the word thousand is used very often just like you see here. It's not meant to be, okay, how many people, use my little abacus, you know, and try to calculate all that. It just means a whole bunch of people without giving you an exact number, right? 
So when we get to Revelation 20 and it speaks of a thousand years, it means an awfully long time. And if we had time, and we don't, we have only 10 minutes, um, I could show you throughout the Old Testament, but you can do this yourself, right? This is for fun and games. You go home, you open up your, your concordance or your Bible program or whatever, and look up the uses of thousand, grab a Bible dictionary, new Bible dictionary or some of the old ones like vines or whatever, and look up a thousand, and you'll find out that unless it's a dispensational dictionary where they're like, ooh, scratch that entry, um, they'll explain to you that thousand is used sometimes literally, like when it says they took the census and there were, you know, 15,000 whatever Benjamites running around at that time. That's a literal number when it gives you that. But the use of a thousand is just like in our culture. It's just used for an awfully big number. Are there numbers bigger than a thousand? Yes. But think about if you're an illiterate person, okay? And you haven't really gone to school and you haven't learned millions and billions and trillions and googlegillions and all that other stuff. Thousand is a pretty big number. Most of us get hundred. Naturally, we can get, capture a hundred. And after that, it starts getting really big. Thousand was just used as a general number for something that's really big. So when we get to Revelation 20 and it says that there's going to be a period of a thousand years, then we can begin to see that maybe this is not so crazy after all to say that this entire period between the first and second coming is the thousand years. I'm sorry, how do you fit? Oh, the Antichrist. Can we hold on to that? Because I, I, um, now you're kind of getting into, and there's nothing wrong with this, the whole eschatology thing, which is to say, you know, um, to try to explain all the end times. I just want to kind of nail the millennial thing. Where does the Antichrist come in? That's a very good question. I think I'll give you the 30-second answer. John answers that for us. The Antichrist is already here. What? But we're supposed to look at somebody called Damon who's supposed to be born in 1976. Um, and he's supposed to have 666 or whatever, you know. The Antichrist is already here, John says. Any, anything and anybody who stands up against. Uh, uh, the reformers thought that who was the Antichrist? The Pope, yeah. Because the Pope was against the gospel. And um, so I'm going to leave it there. There's more we can say. We can talk about the possibility at the end there will be one big antichrist, but he's not going to be... Yeah, I'm already doing what I said I wasn't going to do. Um, so let me just focus on this whole millennial thing. The, the key thing to pick up then is how the book of Revelation is structured. And you can read it in one of two ways. One, you can read it sequentially. And if you read it sequentially where the whole idea is that it's just like a book, you know, beginning and it, all the way through the end, and it's all movement in time, a lot of it doesn't make sense. Or it can only make sense if you start introducing kind of like a lot of wacky things in, into stuff. But how about if you look at it this way? How about if you look at, because we can all divide several portions. We all, you know, the first three chapters, for example, that's the, uh, um, the letter to the seven churches. Actually, the letters come in, Chapters 2 and 3, the first one is the introduction. John sees him, and, you know, and Jesus is like, you know, dynamic and overpowering, and he is the, the reigning king, right? And in chapters 2 to 3 is the letters to the seven churches, and 4 to 5 is that throne room vision that we just talked about, and then it goes on from there. And you can, most people can break up where these visions tend to have a definite start and end. What if, if the book is really written to encourage believers in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of suffering, that Jesus is the king, what if that's what it's about? And by the way, it reminds me of a story in the late 19, uh, um, uh, 18th century, late, try to get, late 19th century, which is the late 1800s. Uh, there was uh, an Anglican preacher in England, Church of England. Um, there was a time where there was a lot of already apostasy in the Church of England. Uh, so this is not J.C. Ryle, uh, who's, uh, who's the, the, the rector or whatever uh, at, at this church. And, uh, you know, he was a learned man. He had gone to whatever schools and who knows what. And so he's walking out of the, the, the church one day and he sees the sexton. Sexton is the word that they use for their janitors, essentially, the people who, you know, clean and put up, you know, stuff and do all the, you know, kind of work. And it's after work and the guy's just sitting there and he's reading the Bible. And so the, he thinks, I'll go over there and see what he's doing because, of course, I'm the guy who knows about this and he's going to ask me and, you know, all this. 
And so he tells him, what are you reading there, George? And George says, the book of Revelation. And he immediately, that's ah, such a hard book, you know, I'm gonna really explain him. And what do you think that it says? And he says, Jesus wins. See, that right there, that's what it's all about. That's what the whole book is. So if you're trying to comfort people with that, Jesus is on the throne. He's superintending all of history. He's given the book of, eternal, of God's eternal decree. He alone is worthy to open the seal and that Jesus, even as he sits on the throne, even as you get your diagnosis of cancer, even as your child dies, even as you are thrown into jail for believing in Christ, even as you go through whatever it is that you're going through, God, uh, Jesus is unfolding God's eternal decree. This is exactly what he wanted. And everything is going according to plan. So this is what you want to comfort people with. And so when you begin to understand that, then you can see that what we're looking at in the book of Revelation is not a sequential story, but the story told about what's going to happen from here to here that is told again and again from different perspectives. And so it actually, the technical term that we use is recapitulation. It retells that same story, but from a different angle. And some have said that what it actually does is it starts down and then gets bigger in scope, bigger in scope, bigger in scope. Once you see that, you see that it's playing out and each time talking about a different perspective, but in each one, it's this idea that Jesus reigns, that he's in control, and that all things will work out. Okay, and you can see that even in the letter to the seven churches because it says that when I return, I will do for this to those churches whom I find doing this or don't find doing this. So even in that letter, in those letters, it's talking about here's where we are right now, here's what's going on right now, but when I return, those who behave this way, those who don't, and that kind of thing. So it already gives you that kind of view. If you understand that, then it all begins to really fall into place. Does that make sense? So what we really see here, the tribulation is all of this. And we go through these different moments and the church is always um, has culture against it, has the world against it, that kind of thing. I think it's pretty evil right now. And... Um, yeah, usually your amillennial uh, position, hang on, I'm trying to get back to my notes. Where do I have them at? Uh, usually your amillennial position understands that there may be moments that are lighter, but generally goes up and down, up and down. And um, the world is always against the church in some form or fashion. And you, know, and, and, um, you might go through a period where things are rougher, then, I mean, right now, even as good as we have it, and I think, and you've heard me say this, and I, I'll recognize you in just a moment, Chelsea. You've heard me say the cultural and the social cost of following Christ is rising rapidly, you know, in our culture. Um, not like it was in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. It's been picking up pace, but, you know, it's an asymptotic curve. It really is getting there. So I think we're going to feel a little bit more. But even while we're sitting here in relative peace, we're gathered here, there's no you know, FBI agents yet on the door, though they will be knocking on Scott's door after he posted what he posted on um, Telegram last night. Uh, and don't think they're not watching or listening. Right? Um, so, you know, we chuckle until it happens. Right? We think it's all kind of, you know, uh, but even as we were saying that, the 20th century was the century of the greatest martyrdom in the church more martyrs in that 100 years than in the 1900 years before that. Now think about that. While we're celebrating and thinking, oh, you know, peace, peace, peace. Here, brothers and sisters were dying all throughout the world for the name of Christ, much more so than all the other centuries combined. So yes, I think tribulation is pretty much spread out all throughout um, is there, there are some guys who believe that there's going to be a little uptick in the end. I think, you know, they've maybe heard a little bit too much dispensationalism or they've been affected, but maybe not. Uh, there are some who, who they're called optimistic amil. They try to bring in a little bit of this and think, well, there'll be, the church is growing. The church is getting better. But I think the real secret, and uh, you might remember, was it two years ago that I, uh, that was the last time that we were in the annex for Sunday school, 
that I went through the uh, Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. You guys remember that? And, we, and it's so, so clear. You cannot know when he's coming. You're going to be going about your business. It says some people will be out in the field. Some people, you're going to be just in, in commerce. You'll be, you know, shopping at Tom Thumb. You'll be, you know, working on your car, right? You'll be, somebody will be having an argument with their, you know, their wife and, you know, and, and all, whatever. Another guy's going to be showering. He's going to be the guy who's going to kind of, whoa. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, and Jesus returns and that's what's going to happen, right? Let me give you a little bit of, um, maybe a little bit of proof of that. Okay, I didn't want to put any thoughts into your mind. Um, yeah, so let me give you just some passages. We won't look them up because of our time, but Acts chapter 1, verse 7. 24, let me see, what verses can I give? How about if we just say 36 and following? Okay, you guys know FF, F means 36 and following, the very first verse, 36 and 37. FF means 36 and on. And you can figure it out from there. First Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5.1. All those say one thing. You will not know when he comes. So you can't, you can't sit there and say, well, here we've had a thousand years where we've been on the increase, so we're really close. Or like our premillennial guys, oh, it's happening now. Saddam Hussein is, resi-. You know, okay, I don't know if you guys remember that, first Gulf War. Uh, Pat Robertson is, you know, on uh, the 700 Club. Um, he's invading, you know, Kuwait. And all that. This is a fulfillment here of Jeremiah. We see the tanks going over, oh, it's all this kind of stuff. It's happening. And I see people all the time, you know, like you read political stuff and, oh, the wickedness in our country, which is real. Not, uh, and so their whole thing is, uh, um, uh, th- this is the end times. Well, they're right. It is the end times. And it's been the end times since Jesus came. And in fact, that's been said again and again and again. Oh, Chelsea, I forgot you had something. Let, let's go. I kind of already. Yeah, tribulation is around all the time. So that's the first thing. No one can know when Christ will return. Second, uh, oh, I did write this in my notes sometimes. It's like amazing. Um, these are the last days. Let's give you some text for that. So no one knows when Jesus will return. Last days, Hebrews 1, 2, which we're going to be reading in the, um, in the service today. John six thirty nine. These are the last days. Oh, 1124, 1248. You almost think that John cares about this. Acts 2.17. No, we're out of room. Yeah, you may not be able to read all that from up there, back there. But that's why you should be sitting up front because this is where holy people sit. Yeah, that too. I keep telling you, these seats, crime tape has come down. They've been disinfected. They're, they're okay now. So um, these are the last days. And then you get this parable that Jesus gives of the wheat and the tares. Remember that? And what does Jesus say? Say that the wheat will be growing up right along with the tares, and it's only on the judgment day when they come and it's all harvested that then they are separated. So the good is going to be happening with the bad at the same time. Believers and unbelievers at the same time. We're not going to have any kind of real disconnect like we have there. Even now, both are, are in process. And when we look, then we begin to see that really is the case all across the board. Yeah, so let me, let me first say that if you hold to historic premillennialism, where the kingdom does come in here when Jesus comes and continues, and then when he returns, he has a thousand literal years of reign on earth before he has a broader reign, uh, that does not apply. They still say you're saved by Jesus. The postmillennial also does not apply, and... Amil certainly does not apply. It's only for the dispensational variety of this, where already the church is another plan, plan B, and this has this whole other thing going on 
where these unbelievers will be saved as they look back to the temple. So I think I've already kind of touched on that to sit there and say, um, not only is it plan A, plan B, then plan C, but it completely undermines the work of Jesus uh, just by having those views. Yeah, yeah. Now, by the way, there is an answer, and I could have said it when we were looking at that, and the answer that they give is, well, that's because it is dispensational. And we are saved differently in, if you're a dispensationalist, you're saying this. Please don't take a video clip and put that as if it's our words. But what they're basically saying is that um, you are saved by grace here, but before that you were saved by the law. That's the general teaching of dispensationalism. That's been softening quite a bit. Uh, Then you grow up in dispensational churches. I would imagine a whole bunch of folks in a place like Texas. So that has been softening thanks to DTS, actually, to Dallas Theological Seminary. What happened, you may not know this, is in the 80s, a couple of key guys in Dallas were influenced by guys at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And there is now a third version of dispensationalism, because you had an original version, then you had what we would now call Schofeldian, uh, classic dispensationalism, which is the American version of dispensationalism. The original version of British dispensationalism is pretty much dead. And now you have this softer dispensationalism that says in the Old Testament, you are saved by grace. So we're thankful for that. It's a big, that's a big, huge leap. Schofeldian uh, dispensationalism, what you get in your Schofield Bible, your Ryrie Bible, Charles Ryrie, not only was it separating the New Testament era from the Old, but the Old was itself divided into the Adamic, the Noahic, uh, um, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and so on. And every one of them had their own variation, their own flavor, their own plan of salvation. So it's kind of messed up. But yeah, in, in, in the amillennial view then, uh, this whole thing, basically their answer is, well, yeah, these guys are being saved the same way these guys in the Old Testament are being saved. And believers who were under Christ are saved by a completely different plan. And it just does violence to the whole of Scripture. So, other questions? That was good, Matt. Yeah, he, he uses... Yeah. Well, it depends. Is he talking about the last days or when he's talking about... He has a lot of references to the return, to his return. Is a lot of, like Matthew 25, is all about when he returns. And, okay, that's parables of the kingdom. Let me take a look at Matthew 13 with you. And I realize we're also out of time. It's 10, 12. But let's, let's uh, take a... Yeah, so the, the end of the age is, yes, his return. I'm still not there. Uh, 1340, you said? Yeah, the harvest, uh, look at 13. Um, so there's your parable of the weeds, uh, the tears. Uh, 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. I was already presuming that you you got that, the wheat and the tares, um, the good and the bad, uh, those who are saved, those who are not. And then um, the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will be at the end of the age. So yes, that is referring to his return. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty much saying when it all comes to an end. But what he's arguing is that all this is going to be mixed in between. And he says, and we'll end with this, at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, that there will be wars and rumors of wars and there'll be all these things. But that's not the end yet. Because that's what happens. Every time that there's a war or something, just turn to Twitter or whatever. It's the end, it's the end, oh, run away. You know, and that's what, that's, okay, some of you got that last reference. But that's basically what you see again and again and again every time. By the way, the Napoleonic era, right? We don't study all that a whole lot in American history because we don't study American history. We don't study any history anymore. But, you know, when we study history, we look at the Napoleonic era. That was a pretty big thing. Napoleon was crushing all of Europe. It was the first mini-world war, certainly continental war. I mean, they was like everybody was involved. And what were people saying? End of the age. Cats and dogs living together. The whole nine yards. It was all happening back then. And that's happened every single time. You've got to go back to Matthew 24. He's saying, look, you hear wars, you're going to hear rumors of wars. It's not the end. So, okay, let's go ahead and stop there. 
Uh, there's a whole lot. I mean, maybe we sometimes do a, cl- a class on Revelation or just eschatology in general, which obviously will deal with Revelation, but also deals with the Olivet Discourse and deals with chapter 7 of Daniel, chapter 9, right? The 70 weeks, what does that mean? Oh, you know, there's a lot of good stuff that goes on there. And once you kind of begin to get the interpretive key, it all begins to fall into place. In fact, I've probably given you enough keys that you can read Daniel 9, and next week you can come and tell me, oh, Pastor John, it makes sense. Here's what it is. So that's your homework assignment. But for now, let's go ahead and, um, for the service, and let's go ahead and just call it quits for now. If you have any other questions, grab a hold of me afterwards, uh, or we can take them up next week. But let's go ahead and pray because we're, ooh, 15 minutes past. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that one thing is absolutely clear and that Sexton had it down. Jesus wins. And so, Father, whether um, our country continues on the direction in which it seems to be headed or whether uh, we manage to turn it around, one thing we know is that Jesus is still reigning, still sits on his throne, still doing exactly what he wants. Uh, We do thank you, Father, for the nation in which we live and how many blessings uh, we have experienced through it, which really is through you allowing it to be the... uh, what it has been, but we know, Father, that in the end, our citizenship is not in the United States of America uh, or anywhere else. Ultimately, it is in this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and we see Jesus is indeed uh, restraining, uh, conquering and restraining all his and our enemies, and we thank you that he has conquered our hearts and he has conquered the sinfulness there. We're thankful, Father, that he is at work throughout the world and that the kingdom is spreading. And as uh, John says, at the very beginning in his prologue, uh, the, the darkness could not overcome the light of Jesus and his kingdom. We thank you, Father, for that. Help us, Father, to be um, understanding of what sometimes are difficult texts. Help us to be, um, uh, uh, I, I suppose, when we look at others who believe differently, Father, that we might uh, uh, be charitable in our understanding and in our, uh, the way that we treat them if we have understood anything um, somewhat more clearly. Uh, it's not because uh, we're better or smarter, but simply because you have chosen to um, to reveal it to us. May we um, have that humility as we recognize that you are the one who brought us to this place. You are the one who's taking us from beginning to end. And as you tell us in Philippians 1.6, you who began a good work in us, you have promised to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. May it be so for each and every one of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.